Welcome to Mariners Mojo, the heartbeat of baseball podcast by two lifelong Mariners fans. How's it going, Alex? Trivia time. Uh, all it right. is trivia time. We are jumping right <laughs> into it today. We took, what, 40 minutes last time? And this time we took a whole five seconds, so I like it. Going quick. All right, let's go. Okay, can you name the Mariners with 40 saves in a single season? Ooh, 40 saves in a season? So I have to name, uh, is it four guys have done it? You are correct. Okay. So, Diaz. Yep. Sasaki. Yep. Right? Uh, Putz. Yep. Ooh, uh, Charlton. Nope. Um, Jeff Jeff Nelson. Nope. Uh, is it an old guy or a new guy or like nineties guy? New. New guy. Um. What? So I got three of them. Yep. So I'm missing the fourth one. Yep. I can give you one hint. Uh, well, let me think about it for a little <laughs> bit. So I, I got three. What was it? it was Puts, Suzuki, and Diaz. Yep. So there's one more guy? Yeah. Okay. This is the one I didn't know if you could get. All right. Yeah. The other was like, oh, yeah, the three main closers. Yeah. Hmm. I'll have to think about it. See, it kind of bothers me because one of the questions we had was like the league leader in <laughs> safe, or career le- franchise leader in safe. So I was looking at the saves list. <sighs> that bugs me. all right whatever um so a couple things we're going to talk about this week it's the all-star game and it's the draft so it may be a little futures game but that wasn't that exciting yeah i didn't see that so uh draft started on sunday right it's today tuesday yeah today's tuesday draft started on sunday first round uh day two was monday which was also the home run derby and like the celebrity softball game. And then it rounds out day three, all-star game. I think the futures game was Monday, right? Yeah. Monday. Was it Monday or Sunday? Either way, the futures game already happened. Um, it's the past. Kelnick went 0 for 1. Julio went 0 for 3. Yeah. But he stole second and then stole third but overslid. And so it got tagged out <laughs> sliding past. Is that a stolen base and then a caught stealing? I think it goes down as caught steel, but it should be a stolen base. Yeah. Like and you then, stole, went past the bag. So I get a single, but get thrown out at second. Yeah. You still get a hit in the single. Yeah, it should be. A... He just got thrown out going home. <laughs> yeah. I like it. Yeah, he got two stolen bases. We'll go with that. <laughs> but we'll end up talking down the line about Kelnick Moore, like when he gets called up, likely this month. He's been raking down there. Yeah. He'll be up. Friday. <laughs> okay. Uh, Julio, he's been raking still since he got called up. Yeah, and he's playing in the... He's in double A now, right? Yeah, because we can't see him in Everett anymore. Yeah, he got called double A. But... Yeah, so he's over in Arkansas. Um, but it's the All-Star game that I want to talk to you about because I have a big old issue with the All-Star game now. So we talked a lot about how one guy from each team gets onto the All-Star game, right? Yep. So... Before the All-Star festivities and stuff, uh, probably the middle of last week, so like the 6th, 7th, somewhere in there, Kikuchi goes on the injured list, right? Yep. Do you know why? Did you see the reason why he went on the injured list? He had flu-like symptoms or something. Well, he was in contact with somebody who had tested positive for COVID. Yeah. So he tests negative. 
So they're like, okay, this is, it's like a precautionary thing because you can put the guy on and once he tests, you can take, pull him right off. And then he tests negative again, which is why he went to the All-Star game. Well, he's there. He takes the team picture. He's doing all this stuff. And then he withdraws because he feels like he isn't ready, prepared, all this stuff for the game. Well, everybody's supposed to have a player on the All-Star team. Shouldn't they have replaced him with the Mariner? They should have, yeah. I would understand if they're like, okay, it's too late. There's no replacements. That's okay. But to pull two pitchers, neither of who is a Mariner, and one of who is on the Rays, which is Cash, I think, is the manager of the Rays. Like, he chose his own guy. Yeah. That's... So there's no Mariner. Doesn't that seem messed up? A little bit. Like, they made that rule for a reason. Right? And then they're just like, nah, never mind. It doesn't really matter. And I could maybe understand if the Mariners didn't have any pitchers that should be in the All-Star game. Like, any backup pitchers. You could easily put Graveman or Seawald in the All-Star game. Yeah, they're they're doing good, and they're just bullpen guys, so it's not like it's a big deal. Yeah, and no one throws more than an inning anyway. Maybe the starter throws two. But, like, Graveman, he had a zero ERA, right, until he went on the COVID list. Yeah. He was out two to three weeks. Uh, Yeah, he was right in there, and then he struggled the week and a half back because guys take a month. Well, he's only given up like three, four runs still. His ERA is still, what, high ones? Yeah. Low twos? Still, and, yeah. I think he's still in the ones. And then Seawald leads baseball in case per night. Yeah, he kind of came out of nowhere. Right? It's like, yeah, maybe you should put him in there. Like, what's the thing fans want to see? Strikeouts. And, and home runs. runs. So a guy with the high strikeout rate, when he makes a mistake, it's usually a home run. Right? So isn't that the guy you'd want to put in? You would think, right? I would think. Can we just blame it on Rob Manfred? Because he's showing more and more every day how he's a horrible commissioner. Yeah, we'll just blame him. All right, good. Can we blame this on Houston somehow? Yes. Oh, you know whose fault it is? Otani. Because if he would have signed with the Mariners like he was supposed to. Then he would be. Here we go. It's another thing to not like the Angels for. I'm all for not liking the Angels. Yes. Right. I tell you that all the time. <laughs> <laughs> it's true. You do constantly. I will get random texts from Alex. It's just like talking crap about the Angels or how they're <laughs> dumb or they're wasting stuff. and Yeah. It's awesome. I don't. It's also dumb traps in the All-Star game. Okay. I've got yeah. selected for it. Yeah. But at least with that, like they choose a replacement and it's somebody who should be there who probably wouldn't have got voted by the fans. Yeah, but I still don't even want him to get voted. Yeah. He hasn't played in like over a month. There should be some kind of modifier. So you know how to like uh, be a league leader. You have to have 3.1 plate appearances per game played or an inning pitched per game played or whatever. It shouldn't be quite that number because if you miss two weeks, you might not qualify for the All Star game no, for that it stuff. Doesn't then. be that high. But, but if it's like two point two or something, if you haven't played half the games, you can't go. Yeah, if you're an everyday player, like if you get to this point in the season and you have under two hundred and twenty plate appearances, 
or you're a starter with under 50 innings, you probably shouldn't be eligible for the game. Yeah. Yeah, there might be, yeah, like Trout. Because he hasn't played since the middle of June, beginning of June. Right? Because they put him on the 60-day IL. Yeah. Um, you trying to look at the last time Trout played? Yeah, he's only got 36 games, 146 play appearances. And he was the number two, number one vote getter in the outfield? I think top two, yeah. One of the, I don't remember exactly. but Which is dumb. I love Trout. I, I want to love Trout. It's just on the terrible team. Yeah. And he chose to resign there. Yeah. Yeah, he hasn't played since May 17th. Hmm. That's uh, that's eight weeks. Yeah. He hasn't played in eight weeks, Alex. And yet he gets a little all-star on his baseball reference. Well, it makes up for all the times he was robbed of the MVP. So, you know, but the MVP actually matters and the all-star game doesn't, so... It doesn't matter. He's got three already. <laughs> he should have like six. I don't want him to have six. <laughs> <laughs> Although it does make the Angels that much worse. If they had right. It's like your best player has won the MVP more than he hasn't won the MVP. Yes. And he's made the playoffs once. Right? Isn't that what it was? Yeah, one time. And that was like... <sighs> Wasn't it with a, like an 86-win team? Yeah, something like that. And that was when he was like 22. That doesn't even count. He was a baby. <laughs> That's embarrassing. You know what else is embarrassing? That I still can't figure out the answer to this trivia question. Do you been, want a hint? I've been trying to. You said it was a new guy too. It's like there should. There's got to be someone in there that's obvious that I'm forgetting. So new is from 2000 on. Yeah. Um, so it's not cause. I said Jeff Nelson. Not Arthur Rhodes. No. I'm missing chunk in there you are oh man um come on you're like oh i knew it i know that's what's bugging me it's i should know this all right give me a hint this is gonna upset me erica does not like him at all erica doesn't like him um that doesn't help me at all okay i said it at the trivia night that erica didn't like this guy Oh, but you might not have heard me. <laughs> no one okay. ever heard you say anything. I will anything. give you his celebration. Oh, Fernando Rodney. <sighs> Darn it. <laughs> Didn't he have like 48, 51 saves or something with the Mariners? Um, he had a lot of saves, right? Yeah, 48. Yeah. 2014. That was the thing. Was like, there's a, someone in there who did really good, even though the team wasn't good, which, I mean, it's the Mariners. That's kind of a given. But, yeah. Because he had that stretch. He was good for a long time. He only played for the Mariners for a two se- season and a half. Two seasons? Season and a half. That's all he played for the Mariners. Yeah. He didn't get a whole lot. No. Huh. He was bad the second year with the Mariners. 2015 out of 568, all right? Oof. Oh, he got cut. Did he get cut or... Trading. I think it was too late in the season. He got cut because he had that awful ERA. It like, or he got uh, not cut the secondary trade window they would do, where you could only trade for guys who weren't on the forty man no. that they used to have. He would think it was part of that. I don't remember, but yeah. I just remember every time going in, it's like, ah, not that guy again. Yeah, I really did not <laughs> hear that at all during trivia night that Erica didn't like him. It was when they were doing the going over the early pitching stats and stuff, yeah. and 
I think Adam's like, Rodney. He's like, no, I hate that guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, right. That makes sense. Well, we only talked about the All-Star Game and stuff a little bit, not just because there wasn't that much to talk about Mariners-wise, but because we were joined by Jason Churchill of Prospect Insider to talk about the Mariners draft. And we originally planned to have him on just for a little bit, you know, cover a couple picks. And then all of a sudden, it's like 50 minutes later. Yes. <laughs> so it's a short podcast from us right now, but because of Jason, it ends up being a full podcast. Yeah, we'll give probably more our opinions next time on yeah. drafts and prospects and stuff. And it's also awesome because thanks to him, starting next week, there will be a new intro to the podcast. Yes, there will. And you will hear it at the end. In about 50 minutes from now. All right, so we're joined once again by Jason Churchill, a prospect insider. How's it going, man? Good. Good to hear from you guys. Uh, glad you guys are uh, still rolling on, rolling strong with the podcast. I'm a big fan of, uh, of podcasts, whether they be sports, uh, Mariners, Seahawks, comedy. So uh, it's good to hear from you guys again. Glad you guys are still going strong. Thanks, man. We definitely have some unintentional comedy sometimes, so I guess that hits a couple of your boxes. <laughs> That's the best kind. Don't throw the word unintentional in front of that. You got to find the funny, you know? And it's just, uh, it's funny. I was telling you off the air before uh, before we went live that, uh, that I was kind of out and about. I had met uh, this evening with a buddy who's long time in the, the sports media business and sports radio and uh, uh, play-by-play broadcasting and things like that. And one of the things we talked about for about three hours was there's not enough funny in local sports media. There's not enough fun on the air. So when that happens, man, you just gotta, you just gotta lean into it pretty hard. Right. Yeah. Just start embracing it and like make fun of each other and go with it. Make fun of each other. Yeah. So, you know, I, I guess what I'm telling you guys here is if you want to make fun of me, I'm good with that. I'm good. Deal. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, so hopefully over your hour and a half of sitting in traffic, you got to think a little bit about uh, Harry Ford, the Mariners' first-round pick. Yeah. Uh, been thinking about that a lot since they made that selection. It uh, Heading into the day, day one of the draft, I was still, like about 8 o'clock in the morning, I was still convinced uh, about 60-40 that they were taking a college player, and I really thought it was going to be Colton Kowser. And while I kind of wonder if Kowser didn't go, you know, was still on the board if they would have done that. But then I learned, you know, about uh, about 10, 11 in the morning that they were targeting Ford. And then as long as the number stayed the same and, and they'd obviously talk to the player and, and his uh, and his advisors, as long as the number stayed the same at 12, that, that Ford was going to be the guy. So kind of kept my trap shut a little bit, sat back and waited and was pleasantly surprised that, uh, that they went ahead and took Ford and guys, I I, uh, I got word that maybe Ford was significantly higher on the Mariners board than maybe two thirds of the league, but that the Mariners weren't the only club that had Ford uh, in their top five, which is saying something suggesting they didn't select until 12. So when you have a player in your top five and you don't pick until 12 and then he's available, I imagine there were a lot of high fives in that draft room when they were able to call his name. So they had to be ecstatic with how the start of the draft went with guys going early, whether it was the Pirates or the Royals taking that lefty out of high school Mm -hmm. to see some of the higher name guys fall and be like, okay, Ford's probably dropping lower on other people's boards. So he's going to be there for us. Yeah. I think the the key to this uh, to Ford getting to the Mariners was um, 
the, the simple fact that a lot of clubs were, they're just shy. They're gun shy on prep players to some extent, but certainly prep catchers, prep hitters uh, to a larger extent. But, you know, I, I don't think the Henry Davis going one, one, I don't think that impacted Seattle. I don't think lighter, you know, Job Jackson uh, going three didn't impact Seattle. I don't even really think the Cowser thing at five necessarily impacted Seattle all that much. The Mazzucato pick with the Royals at the, at seven, uh, certainly could have, but I'm not convinced that any of those clubs ahead of Seattle would have taken Ford anyway. And, and I think when you look at, you know, at least the top four, how the top four panned out, those players were going, you know, in the top four to seven, regardless of which order it was, you know, whether Job goes, you know, seven to Kansas city or nine to the angels or whatever, Job wasn't going to be on the board anyway. But as soon as the Royals reached for Mazzucato at, uh, at number seven, the prep kid, uh, out of Connecticut. Uh, for me, that opened things up for the Mariners to get exactly what they wanted. And at the time, as soon as the Royals made that pick, I'm thinking to myself, Harry Ford, Benny Montgomery, Harry Ford, Benny Montgomery. While the rest of like the fan base, it seems was like Kumar rocker, please Kumar rocker fall to the Mariners at 12, fall to the Mariners at 12. And I'm sitting there thinking Montgomery Ford, Montgomery Ford. And, uh, and then Montgomery goes to the Rockies at, uh, at number eight. And I'm thinking, all right, maybe this actually comes down to Harry Ford and Kumar rocker. If the, you know, pretty much the unbelievable happens and rocker does get there at 12, I was convinced that the, the nationals wouldn't let rocker get past them at 11, but then the Mets took them off the board at that point. It was, uh, it was pretty easy to figure out what, uh, what the Mariners were going to do. I'm curious guys, would, would you have, uh, would you have been a little bit, because uh, the word I put out on Twitter was, I'd be bored with, you know, I didn't say the players' names. But I would have been a little bored with Matt McClain, a little bored with Sal Frey, like a little bored with Colton Kowser, especially Colton Kowser, just because there's so much less to, like, dream on with those three players. First of all, it's a college player. If they don't get to the big leagues in, like, two, two and a half years, you're starting to wonder about the pick. Uh, the upside is somewhat limited. Like I would have been bored with that a little bit. Not that it would have been a bad pick or a bad player or the player that wouldn't help the the next good Mariners baseball team. But I was just like uninspired by the whole idea this whole time. And when it just worked out that Ford was the guy, I was you know pleasantly surprised. And you know my whole attitude about the Mariners draft you know changed. I'm curious if if you felt the same way. If you were like kind of expecting McLean or I'm expecting Ty Madden or I'm expecting Cows or I'm expecting Freilich. And then when they call Ford, were you like, Oh yeah, I was the whole time going up to the draft. Personally, I wanted Ford having the guy who can play everywhere. Like you hear a comp to Biggio, mm -hmm. Craig Biggio, not Kavon. Like, Oh, sure. he can play catcher or second or outfield, like wherever you want to put him. He's not just an athletic catcher. He's an athletic baseball player. Like a guy like that would be fun to root for and watch go through the system. I think people miss that a little bit. I think part of the fan base uh, doesn't understand that sure he was a catcher in high school and that's probably the most likely position he ends up playing, but it, it opens up the, uh, it actually removes risk from the player when you have so many different avenues where you can, uh, you know, fit that profile. You know, if you can play some second or if you can play left field or if you can even play center field or maybe the power, you know, develops better than most people think and he ends up at third base. Like there's so many opportunities there to get that hit or that athlete uh, to the big leagues with value that uh, I, I'm not sure the, the casual fan really understands 
the risk reward and the versatility. And really, and a term I used the other day that I really hadn't used a whole lot before, you know, in public was, you know, a, a very versatile development path. You know, just there's so many chance. Like, okay, what if he can't catch? Well, maybe he can play second. Maybe he can play center. Maybe he can play lefty. So athletic. Well, what if the bat plays pretty much anywhere? Well, if it develops big, and you think defensively playing catcher is going to hold him back a year or so, maybe you just let him play third, or you let him play left field, and you get that bat to the big leagues a little bit earlier. Or maybe they keep the whole multi-position idea, um, you know, in play all the way up to and, and, and through early in his big league career, which obviously adds tons of value as well. So uh, this was a fun one for me. And I think I said this to somebody the other day, uh, this is the most fascinating uh, first round pick the Mariners have made in at least 20 years. Like, I think we have to go back to maybe Ryan Anderson and Gil Mesh in the, in the mid to late nineties in 96, 97, to find a more, you know, especially Anderson, to find a more fascinating uh, pick. Have they picked players that projected to be better? Yes. Have they picked players that, uh, you know, had more upside? Yes. Had higher floor? Yes. Had a higher chance to get to the big leagues, you know, like the probability was higher? Yeah, absolutely. But the what they have in Ford is like this big, giant, talented piece of clay. And now they get to do all the molding. And I'm just like, this player development department, this staff and this organization with a player like this, I'm excited to see what can happen. And it's not just Ford that they're going to be able to be malleable with and kind of see what happens. Cause when they drafted Arroyo with their next pick, I had to go back and look to make sure I heard correctly that he pitches lefty and plays short as a righty. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty crazy. A switch thrower and a switch hitter with some speed and yeah, he can field a ground ball and has lateral range and is above average to plus runner and just a really good athlete all around with a very sound swing. I mean, that's not a profile you hear a lot. I mean, it sounds similar to a lot of other guys until you hear, Oh yeah, he can throw in the mid eighties as a left-hander, even though he plays shortstop as a right-hander with the plus arm. It, it, that, that is pretty crazy. Um, I, I kind of have a different, uh, kind of thought process with Arroyo. I actually think Arroyo is less of an upside play than their next two picks, which were obviously Michael Morales, the, the prep kid uh, out of Pennsylvania, and the Texas A&M right-hander Bryce Miller. Um, but he's still extremely interesting. And I don't think he's a developed power. So we're talking about maybe a guy who, if things work out, he's Adam Frazier. We've talked a lot, you know, I think with the Mariners about second base. And I brought up Adam Frazier a thousand times on the podcast and certainly on Twitter. And I think that's maybe what Edwin Arroyo turns out to be. It's kind of odd that they would take that player uh, while we're talking about Adam Frazier quite a bit, possibly being a guy Seattle adds for a second base for the next year and a half, but they maybe just drafted the next Adam Frazier. So uh, that's certainly a fun pick as well. So uh, what do you like about uh, Bryce Miller? I like that uh, a couple of things. One, when you, you look at the body, you know, uh, listed at 6'2", about 183 pounds. Um, so he's going to put on a little bit of weight. I think of Levi Stout quite a bit. Uh, he's 6'1", 195 now when they drafted him. He was about a buck 80. I think he's probably really over 200 pounds now. I saw him a couple of weeks ago in the, in Tri-City. Looks like a big leaguer, you know, and, and, and we get stuck sometimes on, okay, the projectable bodies are generally 6'3", 6'4", 6'5". 
um, with lots of weight to put on their frame. But I still see some of that, despite the fact that Miller is, you know, a 21 year old uh, college kid. And the fact that he has just one year under his belt as a starter is actually a bonus for me in terms of trying to push forward and project above where he's performed at this particular point. He was a, he was a reliever at a JC. He goes to Texas A&M. He's a reliever for a year. And then this year he starts yet held his velocity, mostly 92, 93, 94 touched 95, 96 in most of his outings. So I'm thinking to myself, this is the kind of athlete where he can add some good weight, but he's athletic. So you're going to believe in the delivery, at least long-term uh, there's already good present velocity there. Lots of big time uh, data on his fastball that clubs really, really love as well. High spin rates, the shape, uh, the movement, things of that nature. And when you think to yourself, all right, let's ignore the change up, the curveball, the slider, the slider, which is uh, probably his best pitch at, at present, at least. Just think about the fastball and the delivery and the athleticism. If you can get his fastball firmly in the 94, 95 range, where he's not just touching 95, but he's kind of living in that range, it's a different pitcher. Because right now we're thinking, all right, if, if Bryce Miller is, is just 92 to 94, touching 95, 96 uh, a couple of times a game with a fringe average changeup, a fringe average curveball and an average slider. Well, that's like a number four starter. Okay. And that's fine. And if that's what you get out of your fourth round pick, awesome. I mean, that's, that's pretty good value there if that's what you get out of that pick. But I think because of the data on his fastball and because there's room for even more velocity there. Uh, and, and I say that again, because of the physical projection that's left, the athleticism, the frame will hold 10, 15, 20 more pounds. Um, and as he gets into pro ball and develops that delivery, I, I think he could end up living at 95. And if you project those secondaries just a little bit, now all of a sudden we're talking about a number three starter. Uh, and along with that comes a pretty high floor. Like even if we don't uh, project the, uh, the fastball as a starter, we're talking about a guy who's already been 95 to 97 as a reliever touching 99. So there is a lot of Levi Stout in this uh, uh, in this player, if you think about it that way. Because the way I think about Levi Stout is, sure, he could be a number three, number four starter. Uh, as he develops, are you closing the door on number two? No, but three, four seems to be the right mix, seems to be the right uh, kind of median projection for Levi Stout. Well, with Miller, they're so similar in so many ways. Uh, we can do that with the floor. And I think of Levi Stout's floor as, you know, uh, a two and a half pitch reliever where he's mostly fastball uh, into the upper 90s with that 60 or 70 Vulcan grip changeup. And Miller could be very similar, you know, with that slider. Um, but I think both guys can be three pitch guys. And if the floor is a multi inning three pitch dominant reliever, you're doing really well in round four. So uh, I'm a big fan of, uh, of Bryce Miller at uh, what, 113 overall. I, I think that's a potential steal. And you mentioned Levi Stout a lot. And to me, it just, I have to have some kind of connection with him with getting Tommy John so soon after he was drafted mm -hmm. to Brian Wu in the sixth round where he just had TJ. Mm -hmm. Yep. So what do you think about Wu? Because he's got crazy strikeout stuff, right? He does. Uh, I've heard that uh, he was going for triple digits uh, at one point, a lot of 95, 96, 97 from him, and a pretty good curveball that he turned into more of a power pitch uh, the last year or so. I like Wu to get to the big leagues. Um, and when you're talking about a kid who 
Um, you know, it's easy to say that about a first round or a second round or a third round, but when you get into the, the fifth, sixth, you know, seventh round and Wu being a sixth rounder, and I think what, 174th overall, um, if you feel pretty confident you're getting any kind of a big leaguer out of that, you have to feel pretty good about that particular pick. Um, you know, 6'2", 205, not a ton of projection there, but I'm also not 100% sold that he has to be cast as a reliever only. I think that's what the Mariners are going to do with him, but I think that's just a comment on, you know, how athletic that delivery is and the fact that he has a third pitch. He has a le potentially legitimate third pitch. Now, maybe Seattle says, Brian, let's get you signed. We're going to send you out. You're a reliever. You're going to pitch one, two innings at a time. We want you throwing 155 miles an hour and throw that curveball. We don't care about the changeup. Uh, it, you know, max out on the velocity, uh, max out on the curveball. Uh, max out on the command with both pitches, and we're just going to use you for one or two innings at a time. It's it's entirely possible that they're gonna, that the Mariners are going to do that, and I would lean in that direction. But the fact that he's got a useful changeup at this point makes him very very interesting. Maybe he turns into a three pitch reliever. Maybe he turns into a starter at some point. And I know he started in his past, but I look at him as a little bit of a wild card in terms of what role he's going to end up in. Yeah, ninety five percent chance that he's just a reliever but even then you're getting that out of your six round pick at slaughter under you know that's a pretty good pick so i like the brian Wu pick as well is there uh, anyone else that day two that pops out to you yeah i think the parker kid out of clemson is really really interesting and i'm not sure how signable he is at the end of the day uh, he's a junior, but he has an extra year of eligibility. So in a lot of ways, he's just a sophomore eligible this year because he can go, he can stay in school, go back into the draft next year and still have another year of eligibility to use as leverage with whatever team, uh, selects him, uh, in a year. So I think when Scott Hunter spoke out on, uh, uh, on Tuesday, about how they think they're going to get 18 of their 20 picks signed. I think Parker, I think he had Parker in mind as one of those potentially uh, going unsigned. Uh, but he's really interesting. Get a kid like that in the eighth round, added a bunch of power uh, that he didn't show before during the spring at a big-time college in the ACC. He can certainly play the position. Uh, what, 6'1", about 200 pounds, average to above-average runner, pretty good arm. Uh, that's a really interesting player and a really interesting pick. I also like the uh, – he's a senior sign, but I really like the pick of uh, uh, Spencer Packard, the the outfielder from Campbell, left-handed bat. Uh, he's performed very, very well, and while it's a smaller college, uh, he's actually done very well against velocity. So he makes that interesting as well. Again, a left-handed stick with above-average raw power, and if he can get to it, that's a real interesting guy that might actually get to AAA and make us start thinking about him as some sort of a, a big league option. And I think uh, uh, Jordan Jackson, the, the kid out of Georgia Southern, uh, the right-hander, might have been the more the most fascinating pick of day two. Um, we're talking about a guy who's 6'6", 210 pounds, big-time athlete, has like a 36-inch vertical, and he's already throwing 94 and throwing a ton of strikes. So you get him into pro ball and you start teaching him, you hook him up to your machines and you analyze his uh, delivery, his mechanics, and you try to max out what he brings to the table physically. You might end up with a guy who's living at 96 to 100 uh, with a pretty good breaking ball. So uh, that, that's a really interesting, fun pick to keep track of uh, as well for day two. Do you think with the senior signings with like Packard and um, Thomas at five, that that's going to help get Parker? Or is it still not going to be enough to underslot those two and use that extra for Parker? 
It could, and I actually think there's a chance that Edwin Arroyo comes in a little under slot there, but I think most of that is going to go towards signing Morales. I'm not sure Morales is signable uh, for slot at uh, at pick 83. I think the the bonus uh, for that is uh, about 733,000, a shade over that, I believe. Um, so the majority of the savings that they they get out of either Arroyo and certainly out of Andy Thomas, the fifth rounder, the catcher out of Baylor. And uh, Colin Davis, uh, uh, the outfielder out of uh, out of Wofford and uh, uh, Packard, uh, as you mentioned in round nine, I think most of that goes toward uh, toward Morales. So uh, I'm not really sure. Here's here's the interesting thing about this though: like Ford's going to sign for slot. If we just assume that Arroyo is slot and that Morales cost, let's say, you know, let's say a million and a half to kind of be somewhat extreme and to push him. I mean, it's almost twice, or it is twice. The, uh, the slot amount. So you have to, you have to find about 750 to $800,000 somewhere. So how do you do that with, you know, just seven picks remaining? You've already got three picks out of the way. We just uh, determined that Ford was slot, Arroyo was slot in our little scenario here, and that you need to find another $750,000 for Morales at number 83. Well, Miller's probably right around slot. Thomas, you can go under slot. How far under slot? Can they get him for 50 grand and save basically three and a quarter? Maybe. So there's a good chunk of it right there. Is Wu slot maybe probably fairly close, if not, but maybe you can spend uh, you know, 200 or 250 and get him and save anywhere for anywhere from 25 to uh uh to 50 grand on Brian Wu at six, despite the fact that he's a junior and has leverage. Now with Davis, I think the value there is about two and a quarter. Could you get in for 50 grand too? Because there's another 170, 175,000. Can you do the same thing with Packard at nine Uh, and even Jordan at 10, even though he's a junior and has some leverage uh, where the, uh, the slot values are around $150,000. Can you get him for 40 grand? Can you get him for 60 grand? Can you get him for 10 grand? Uh, There are a lot of possibilities there. So it could open the door for Parker uh, in round eight to also be signable. But the thing is, is Parker even going to take slot at that particular spot? It's what, about 180 grand, I think, 178 and change, I think, is slot for that spot. Parker might be thinking to himself, look, uh, I'm a junior. I can go back to school and still have leverage next year because of the extra year I'm being given by the NCAA due to the pandemic and build on what I started this year, showing more power. Can I close some holes in the hit tool and maybe be a top 150 pick? Uh, Maybe I can be a third rounder. Maybe I can be a second rounder and make seven figures. So what Parker's passing up here is probably under $200,000, no matter which way we look at it. So that's a tough one for me. Uh, I'm not real sure they can get Parker in round eight, especially if uh, if Morales is uh, significantly over slot in round three, which I'm I'm guessing is the case, and Arroyo's somewhere around slot at uh, at 1.5 million at uh, at pick 48 in round two. Yeah, thanks for going through and explaining that. It's kind of nice to hear extra on how guys are getting slotted around and how it works with signing some guys early and trying to snag other ones late. Yeah, I got to be honest. Sometimes it doesn't make sense to me either. <laughs> I, I see, like, I see what the Royals did. I don't, I, to be honest with you, I, I don't get it. I think the Royals uh, screwed up, to be honest with you. I'm looking at, uh, well, I understand the general idea of going under slot with your top pick, but we look at what else they did. 
Okay, they got Mazzucato at seven. He's probably well under the $5.4 million slot. So let's just play the game here, and let's say he's a $4 million signing. Well, you just paid $4 million for a guy who doesn't belong in the $4 million range. So maybe he's a $2.5 million player. And then uh, uh, Ben Kaderna, the kid out of Blue West uh, or Blue Valley Southwest High School in Kansas, was their second pick in the slot. There is one seven. Was he a guy that was going to cost you two and a quarter, two and a half million dollars at that spot? It didn't seem like that was the case. And then in the comp round at, at like pick 65 or whatever, they took Peyton Wilson, who's a nice player. Uh, a lot of folks talked about him in the comp round or even late first round switch hitter, second baseman. Everybody thinks he's going to hit sophomore eligible guy. He's obviously an overslot pick there, but did you need an extra $3 million for Peyton Wilson in the comp round? I don't think so. So are you going to give Peyton Wilson $4 million? So, and if they do, they just gave Mazzucato $4 million and Peyton Wilson $4 million when neither guy is a $4 million player. I haven't talked to anybody who thinks Peyton Wilson was a top 30 pick. Uh, I haven't talked to anybody who thought Mazzucato was a top 30 pick. It's just, uh, I think what the Royals did was, was weird to be honest with you. I'm, and I'm not sure it makes any sense to give, uh, uh, I think their third rounder, was Carter Jensen. I'm not sure he's over slot at what, $750,000, $800,000 at that particular pick. Uh, I don't think they went over slot with more than one player after round one, yet they went so aggressive on the under slot at, uh, at pick seven. I'm just, I, I'm, I'm a little weirded out by that one. I can't figure it out to be honest with it. And nobody I talked to seems to understand exactly what the Royals were doing. And you can tell when you look at, I know rankings aren't everything, but you go through and look at each of their picks and every ranking is higher than the pick. So like they reached for everybody, arguably. Right. And they even did that. I think in the fifth round, it was like a hundred pick reach. And like you said, it's MLB pipeline or it's Keith law or it's Kylie McDaniel or something like that doing the ranking and the team has more information, but it does seem like they reach pretty hard on a lot of their picks, despite the fact that, the whole point of doing that in round one is so you can save and stash and use it a little bit later. So I wouldn't be surprised to learn that, uh, that Kansas city uh, ended up leaving uh, a bunch of money in their bonus pool up to a million bucks, which would be disappointing if I'm a Royals fan, if the Mariners did that, wouldn't be like, what are you doing? Like over a million dollars. Like I understand, you know, a few hundred thousand, 300,000 for even 500,000. And last year they left a little bit of money in their pool, but not a ton. Like when teams leave a ton of money, in their bank. I mean, it's, it's pretty disappointing to be honest with you. So it's, yeah, it's definitely disappointing. Um, moving on to day three, one of the guys that popped out to me, like, I don't know a ton about him, but I also don't know why he fell to the 12th round was Corey Rogier, the left-handed outfielder from UNC Greensboro. I mean, a guy hits 350 with 12 homers and 17 steals. You'd think he'd go higher than the 12th round. Yeah, you would. And I think what you have to, to, consider there is how signable was he at that particular point because you know one of the uh the more interesting developments in round one was how far Khalil Watson felt when he ended up going 16 was it to, to Miami yeah, he made it all and, the way there. yeah and what I'm thinking there is is even signable there and 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 I think he is otherwise Miami wouldn't have done it and I'm sure they were talking to his people but uh, how signable was Rozier in round 12? Like maybe he was looking for, Hey, if somebody wants to give me 600 grand, um, I'm going to, I'm going to sign, but otherwise, you know, I got two more years of eligibility. I mean, we're talking about a sophomore eligible kid here. 
um, that may have been the thought process there. So he may be another player. Seattle's thinking maybe we just, maybe we don't get this one done. Um, but it's a real interest. It's certainly an interesting pick. You have to like the player. Uh, he has speed. Uh, and that's a pretty solid program, even though it's uh, thought of as a, as a mid major. And despite the fact that he's not very big, what's he five ten and like a buck 85 hit yep. the 12 homers. Uh, but I think he had four or five triples as well. And, you know, like you mentioned, stole uh, 16, 17 bags. So he's a real interesting player, uh, greatly improved his contact rates this year. I'd really like to see what he does next year in school. Not not that Seattle shouldn't sign him, but this is a kid who, when you look at the production, you know, hitting 350, get on base, you know, what, 43, 44% of the time, and even slugging 600. This is a kid who belongs in like the top 150 picks, doesn't he? Like you just look at that production, even at a mid-major, you know, we're talking about uh, Ethan Wilson and and Colton Kowser at mid-majors going in round one or round two and, you know, certainly higher than what Rose, uh, Rozier did. I, I just think uh, if, if I'm this particular player in this particular instance, um, you're going to have to grossly overpay me to get me to sign. Otherwise, I'm going to go back to school as a 21-year-old and you know put forth another season like this and go in the top 100 150 at worst uh you know somewhere in the the 58 round range and make a lot more money than i can make here because the the mariners pool like if it works out the way we kind of think it does they're going to be out of money in round 10 there's not going to be a whole lot left if if any at all so i don't know what slot is in uh in round 12 if you just and they don't really they don't assign that but if we went from round 10 i think uh uh, Jordan Jackson's slot is like 146,000. Well, if we continue to make that and we continue to just in our heads at least, so the next round, you know, 30 picks later, what's that pick value? Like 120,000. And then the 12th round pick, the the slot is like 110,000. And anything over 100,000 for picks after round 10 count against the the bank, the bonus pool. So Seattle doesn't have any left. $100,000 is the most they can offer unless they want it, they want to pay tax on that. This is where the penalties come into play. And if it's up to 4.99%, you just pay 75% on the overages. But if you go over 5% uh, over your bonus pool, and they'd have to, to get, uh, to get this particular player at 354 to sign, I think, uh, then all of a sudden you start losing future first round picks. That's not something you do for a player that probably at best, even next year belongs in like round three or four on the high side. So very interesting player, probably one of the more unsignable players. And while I'm not saying they can't get it done or won't get it done, I wouldn't be surprised uh, if, uh, if Rozier ended up being one of those with Parker and uh uh, you know, maybe a Kingsbury, uh, maybe, uh, maybe the, the kid they took in round 20, uh, Troy Taylor, I think is, uh, uh, is probably the most likely of the entire draft class to not sign your 20th round kid. You're at a JC, uh, you're 20 years old. Uh, you probably want to do the JC thing. Uh, uh, take it that to a four-year school and play a year somewhere, whether it be at, uh, you know, at Cal or Stanford or UCLA or whatever it is, or UC Santa Barbara and have a chance to go a lot higher than round 20. There's not a whole lot of financial upside for kids to take these deals uh, after round 10, especially when the club's not going to be able to go over slot to sign them. So who's the, who's your favorite guy that they got in the third round? Third day. Third, third day, not round, third day. <laughs> On day three? Yeah. Uh, man, that's a good question. Um, I like the kid, uh, 
uh, Andrew Moore, which is weird and probably uh, shoving, uh, you know, shutters down the spine of, of uh, some Mariner fans because the previous version of Andrew Moore was not very good. And then he was traded to Tampa and I, not even sure he's in baseball anymore, but he's really interesting. You look at a left-hander, 6'5", 210 pounds. Uh, he's a little older. I think he's already uh, 21, almost 22 years old. But uh, out of Chipola, which is one of the better JCs uh, in the entire country, lots of big leaguers have uh, have come out of that uh, particular JC. Uh, he's really, really interesting. You can build some velocity off the low 90s. Uh, he's already touching. I think um, – uh, where's the other guy here? Uh, Ramirez is interesting. Uh, I don't think he's gonna play shortstop though. The kid that got in round 13, Ben Ramirez out of USC, uh, left handed bat, senior sign, like 6'3, 210 pounds. I think he's a third baseman or an outfielder, but there might be something in the bat there. Um, so we'll kind of have to see how that, uh, how that he kind of reminds me of, uh, uh, not that they're the same type of player, but this particular pick kind of reminds me of Cade Marlowe, who started this year in Modesto, raked, right, and really belonged in Everett. There just wasn't room for him. And then finally got sent to Everett, and he's still raking. It's like I, I feel like Ramirez could be the same kind of a guy, and at some point maybe we have to look up and go, maybe this guy is something uh, after all. And he can fill the ground ball, so maybe third base uh, will work out for him, but uh, the bats is what uh, the bat is what's going to get him. Uh, through the minors and to the big leagues if he does that. But uh, lots of interesting picks. I, I wasn't enamored with their approach on day three, but I think they went for signable guys that, uh, for the most part, uh, with the exception of uh, of round 12 there with the UN's, uh, UNC Greensboro kid. So on the other side of talking about all these guys that we like and that we're looking forward to, who's the one that when they announced the pick for the Mariners, it kind of left you shaking your head like, why would they take this guy? Uh, I think, um, really none, but it, it, when, when Morales was, I wasn't enamored with the Morales pick at first, um, because on the surface, we're looking at a kid who's six two two ten. not a lot of physical projection left in that he's uh sitting 89 and 92. That doesn't inspire, you know, excitement whatsoever. Uh, average breaking ball, average change up average to above average command. It feels like it felt like on the surface anyway, that the, at 83, they took a guy that could have got at 144 or 174. But as I dug in and started calling around and, and catching up to uh, uh, some front office folks, I ran into uh, a friend of mine that, uh, that is an analyst in uh, how do I hide this, but also give you, he's an NL West, He's with an NLS club and he actually used to work for me and he's a great dude. And He's one of their analysts, and he said, look, when Seattle took Morales, we were mad. We were upset because we thought we were going to be able to get him in the fourth or fifth, even though there was a lot of buzz around him for late round one as an underslot or a comp round or very, very early second rounder. Um, there were teams that thought he would get to them late in round three or round four or even round five, and they'd be able to just say, here's a million five. Even though slot, here's $350,000, here's a million five, we really like you. And that just didn't happen because Seattle was all over it. He's a guy where the the slot that he was taking at 83 is based uh, somewhat, and, I, and I'd say it's kind of a split, maybe 50-50. Uh, a split on the delivery and the command that he's showing right now, plus the the data on his pitches. 
I, you have to love spin rates and pitch shape and things of that nature to kind of understand why Morales makes made so much sense at three. And while it might end up actually being a steal and on Twitter, I was like, wow. Okay. As, as I'm learning more about this player, this is reminding me of the George Kirby pick. And I'm not saying the two are the same player. They're entirely different physically. Kirby's got a lot more physical projection, but in process, there are some similarities there. Hey, this kid throws a lot of strikes. We like the, the data on his pitches and we think we can get more velocity out of him. So let's snag him here at three. So when it, when it was first made, I was like, I don't love this. I think that was the term I, I used that I didn't, didn't love it. But the more folks that I talked to that were on the analytical side started sharing some of the data with me. And I was like, all right, all right, I totally get it. And Seattle's really good at this sort of thing. Uh, that was the Zach Deloach pitch uh, pick uh, last year in round two. That was the uh, uh, that was the George Curry pick a couple of years ago. Data was very much uh, in process in the picking of Logan Gilbert at number 14 in 2018. So at some level, we just kind of have to sit back and go, all right, I guess Jerry Apoto and Scott Hunter and Andy McKay and their analyst and Justin Hollander and those guys that are running the draft, they know what they're doing. So even though it doesn't, you know, excite me at this point, um, I get it. Like I get what they're trying to do and I get that they feel really confident that they can extract this value out of this particular player and, and why he makes sense at this particular spot. But uh, I know a lot of folks might say, hey, round five, Andy Thomas catcher out of Baylor, senior sign. Nobody thought that he fit in that particular spot. He's probably the 300th best player in the class. Like, why did he go there? But I think most people understand, oh, he's a senior. He's an easy sign. The slot there is about 380000 They're going to save fifty to $200,000 on that pick. So uh, you can kind of see that coming. I think you say the same thing about Colin Davis in round seven and uh, and Spencer Packard in, uh, in round nine. So, uh, yeah, I don't think they had a lot of um, – there wasn't a lot of head shaking going on. It was just like, all right, let's try to figure out what they're thinking here. And at Morales, for me, at 83 in round three was uh, was the pick that uh, – it actually pushed back. I had recorded an episode of my podcast last night, and I was ready to do it at like 7, 7.30. And then, uh, and then my buddy Rob said, dude, I'm getting on a plane, but we need to talk before you say anything else about your third-round pick. And I was like, all right, I'll wait. And so he flew home uh, and got home and, and we talked about 11, 1130. And I ended up not recording uh, the day two podcast till after midnight on uh, on Monday night because of that. But uh, he made a ton of sense. You know, numbers speak, you know, uh, data speaks to teams. And the more we start incorporating that as observers, as, as fans, as those of us that are a little bit outside the uh uh, you know, the circle of trust, so to speak. We don't have that information readily available to us. Um, you know, it's still kind of a learning process, but that was my reaction to the Morales pick. It wasn't, I didn't hate it, you know, because I was wondering there's got to be something else to this, but until I found out what it was, I was a little uninspired by that selection for sure. So I got one more question. It's not about the Mariners. It's about the angels. They took 20 of 20 all pitchers. <laughs> yeah. What do you think about that? <laughs> yeah, so obviously their general manager. I think this is on uh, Manassian. I, th I think he recognized an issue in their organization um, and is trying to address it and found no reason to do anything but address it, and I completely understand it. The players that they actually selected, um, I don't really know. I, I think what's happening, there's going to be some folks out there that really like the Angels draft, 
there's going to be people out there that don't really love the Angels draft. I hate the Angels draft. And I'm going to tell you why I hate the Angels draft. Because I think they're putting the – Sam Bachman, he's pretty much – I don't want to say he's a, a finished product, but he's a lot closer to it than most picks you know, on day one, and they took him at nine. Uh, Kai Bush, there's some polish there, so I completely understand that. After that, I think what the Angels are doing is – they're throwing noodles on the wall and hoping a couple of them stick and work out for them. And it puts a lot of pressure on the player development staff uh, to do that. I mean, it, it is remarkable to, to, to look at their page at MLB.com at their tracker page and look at the position and see P one through 20. It, it is a, uh, it's both disgusting and beautiful at the same time. And to be honest with you, I don't have a whole lot of confidence it's going to work out. I think the Angels had a very average draft. I, I like Bachman. I like Bush. Uh, I actually like Jake Smith, the kid they took out of uh, out of Miami, 6'4", 190. Loved that one. Did not like their third rounder, the kid out of LSU very much. Not at that particular spot anyway. That's Landon Marceau. Uh, yeah, they took a lot of shots. And it just seemed – it almost seemed desperate to me, to be honest with you. Uh, so we'll see. I think they probably get a couple of big leaguers out of this, but other than, uh, other than uh, Bachman at, uh, at nine, I'm not sure they got rotation guys out of this particular draft. Uh, it, it, for me, it's Bachman and Bush. The first two picks are, are their best chances. Otherwise, I think they just got a bunch of relievers, which is fine, I guess. But that team is uh, that team's really difficult to figure out. Uh, I just land, I just shake my head a lot with that club. I saw the Tri City Club in two weeks ago. I, I don't know if you guys, you know, saw any of the tweets that I pushed out or, you know, heard anything I said on the podcast about seeing that Tri City team. This is their high A team. That's supposed to be the equivalent of the Everett Club that the Mariners are sending out there. And I am one hundred percent sure that if the Modesto Nuts took on the Tri City Dust Devils they would kick the living daylights out of that club up and down every week of the season, you know, and twice on Sunday. Like it's, and, and a lot of their, I say a lot, two of their top five prospects are on that team, including their best pitching prospects. So three of their top 10 prospects overall are on that Tri-City team. And it is one of the worst minor league clubs I've ever seen in my entire life. And they just looked out of sync, swing and miss, chasing, errors in the field, pitchers couldn't throw strikes. It was just, my goodness, the Angels are a mess. So I don't know. Maybe Manassian's got things going, and maybe this is the the first step for uh, for things to start heading in the right direction. But uh, I think relying on uh, the player development staff this heavily, and that's what it looks like they're doing with their draft. Uh, I think that's a mistake. I, I think when you go this hard at one position and you reach this far for a couple of their picks, especially uh, in uh, in rounds three. Uh, I'd say rounds three they reached, uh, certainly round four they reached, uh, five and six, maybe even seven they reached. Um, yeah, round eight, I think they reached two with Nick Jones. Uh, I love the profile, but he's a senior who hasn't really performed six six two ten. I'm not sure there's a whole lot of physical projection left there. Um, there's not a whole lot to like there from me, and, and certainly from a traditional scouting standpoint. Uh, there's not a ton here to love. So the Angels continue, at least to me, uh, to be uh, a very puzzling organization with the way they do things. Not going to lie. kind of makes me happy to hear that the Angels are a mess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know what sucks is, uh, you know, if you're a Mariners fan, you want the Angels to suck. 
but they have two of the most polarizing players in baseball, Mike Trout, because he's the best player we've ever seen. And Otani, because what he's doing this year is just remarkable. And it would be advantageous to the game of baseball for the next 50 to a hundred years. If the angels were in the world series, but as Mariner fans, you absolutely cannot let yourself root for that. You can't do it. And if you did, I would just, uh, I would disown you. I would never speak to you again if you did that. Now, that's just not something like Cubs fans can never root for a Cardinal. Cardinals fans can never root for the Cubs. Red Sox. There's just certain things you can't do. And in Seattle, you absolutely cannot root for the Los Angeles Angels. And why you shouldn't root for the Astros for lots of reasons. You shouldn't root for the A's or the Rangers either. The Angels are at their very, very top of the list. That is one of the most hateable organizations in, uh, in all of sports history to me. Just And people don't really understand this, but that fan base is insufferable. They are worse than the Red Sox. They are worse than the Yankees. And the organization just goes out and spends money on, you know, whatever shows up in front of them. You know, Anthony Rendon knocks on the owner's door and says, can you write me a big giant check? And he says, sure, just because he's a nice guy. I mean, it's just, you can't root for that team. They're so hateable and they've been so mediocre despite the fact that on paper, this should be a 90 plus one team. Uh, but it's sad. It, it's very disappointing that Trout landed in a place like this and uh, and Otani landed in a place like this, especially considering where we are with uh, with Major League Baseball and the game of baseball and, and their struggles to market the game, especially to younger players and outside the current demographic of, of, uh, of fans around Major League Baseball. But uh, yeah, you can't do it. I, I think if you're the Mariners, you just have to go win two out of three against them this coming weekend, don't you? I hope so. It'd be nice to take two out of three again from him. So, uh, I guess before you get out of here, what would you give the Mariners for this draft? Like B plus? Yeah, that's a good question too. Um, well, I think they did. Um, uh, I mentioned this last night. Uh, going over through through two days. I haven't done this for uh, for all three days, but through two days, uh, I thought they had the ninth best draft class. And that wasn't taken into consideration the fact that they picked 12th, not first. So comparing them to the Pirates is a little bit unfair. So I didn't take that into consideration. So I compared them unfairly to uh, the, the 11 teams that drafted out of them. And I still had them ninth, maybe 10th. Um, when you take that into consideration, the bonus pool, you know, the, the bank always matters. The uh, When you picked. And you picked 12th, not just in the first round, but in every round. And they didn't have any extra picks. Um, yeah, I, I think I'd give them a B. I think uh, I'm I'm curious to see uh, like if they were to get everybody signed, if all 20 picks signed, uh, I'd probably add a B plus to that. I'd probably add the plus to that B. But for now, I'm gonna stick with B. Really like the Ford pick. Uh, in fact, like the Ford pick a lot. Um, the Arroyo pick, liked it, didn't love it. Um, the which is fine. It's it's totally fine to get a solid player in the second round instead of a player that can be a star. Um, but in the third round, it's kind of the wild card. Morales turns out to be kind of the wild card, but I really, really like the fourth round pick. Uh, really like what they did early on day two overall, uh, when he kind of mashed everything together. So I'd give him a B. Uh, I give him B. It's really difficult for me at this point to go any higher, but if we learn that they signed 20 out of 20 instead of like 18 out of 20, then I'll probably change my grade because adding Parker and Rozier, uh, to that list, uh, and those are the two that I suspect are are, are the uh, the most difficult to sign. That would be uh, a pretty significant addition to their uh, to their 2021 draft class. Well, taking a top 10 draft and adding that to a top five farm system sounds like a pretty good year to me. 
Yeah. And it's only going to get better. I keep having to remind people, uh, there's a lot more on the way. There's obviously a draft every year, but the international classes, the Mariners have lined up the next two years are wow. Um, and while we're waiting for, uh, uh, you know, big FC, the, the shortstop in the class of 2022, 23, uh, as early as July 22, but that might have to wait till January of 23. He's the big gun. He's the number one player in the class. And he's, uh, he's already got a deal, uh, lined up with Seattle and everybody's waiting for that. But the upcoming class that we should learn about in January, uh, also has a top 10 player in it. Um, and, and a couple of other top 25 players. So it's also a very, very good class. Um, the Mariners just keep cleaning house when it comes to adding uh, projectable talent to their system. And uh, I think these uh, these next two international classes are, you know, it, it's kind of redemption, I, I think, from from where I sit with uh, with Jerry DePoto. Because uh, when when Tim Kistner was the uh, – and he was hired by Jack Zarensic, but when Kistner was the international scouting director – uh, he was responsible for bringing in Noelvi Marte and Julio Rodriguez, among others. And they let him go. And they didn't let him go because they didn't think he was doing a good job, but they let him go because Jerry had his own guy. So I believe it was after the 18 season, they let him go. And the first couple of you know international uh, classes weren't necessarily bad, but they certainly weren't great. And we're sitting here watching Julio Rodriguez, a Kistner guy, and Marte, a Kistner guy, especially like flourish in the majors. And this year, it's just added to that. Noah Marte looks fantastic. And, you know, it, it might make some folks think, why did they make a change at International Scouting Director? Like, Kistner was amazing, right? And he was. So now they have Thon Jr. doing it. And I think a class that's coming up this year and the class that's coming up next year uh, kind of redeems the uh, the decision. It kind of, uh, uh, you know, I don't want to say justifies it, but it certainly justifies the hiring of, uh, of Frankie Thon Jr. Uh, in that particular spot for uh, for Jerry DePoto to get in there and get such uh, big-time talents. And the more they perform once they are in the system, the better. But uh, I'll leave you guys with this. I said this the other day, uh, about a week ago on Twitter. I've said it on my podcast. I'm not 100% sure. I've thought about this a lot. But I'm not 100% sure we have seen the Seattle Mariners farm system peak. That is, that's a big nugget to have. Right. I mean, we're talking about Kelnick, top five guy. Rodriguez, top five guy. When the year started, Logan Gilbert was like a top 30 guy. Hancock was like a top 35 guy. Kirby, Marte, uh, Tremel. I mean, it's a it pretty stat. I'm not sure that it's, maybe it has, but I'm not sure that it has. And, to be honest with you, it, it makes me shake my head. You know, I try to anticipate this sort of thing, but I did not expect in June, July of 2021 to think maybe this farm system is going to get better over the next six months to a year. Uh, that's pretty crazy. That's pretty crazy. And that's how good that the next two international classes are as well. So, Well, that is fantastic to hear, and especially hearing those international nuggets. I didn't expect that, but it definitely made my week to hear that about the Mariners. The Mariners are good at what they're doing, man. I, I think that's the most uh, promising thing. And if people say, should I, I've been burned before. I've been disappointed by this organization before. And I'm going to say, look, I don't know if they're going to win at the big league level. I can't tell you that. I'm not a genius. You know, I, I don't know that. But what I can tell you is so many things below the big leagues are working. And a lot of things at the big league level are working in terms of developing players and roster construction and game management. 
that there's just so many reasons to believe in this team moving forward. And we're actually seeing a little bit of that during the 2021 season. They're winning a little bit more right now than I thought they would. And I don't know if they're going to end up winning 85 games or 75, but they're certainly winning more through, you know, through the all-star break, through the first half of the season than most people thought they would. I thought the high side was about 500. And the fact that they're ahead of schedule like that, I think says a lot about Scott Service and Pete Woodworth and, and, uh, Tim Laker and Jared DeHart and guys like that, and certainly Jerry DePoto and the folks that put the the uh, the roster together. So lots to like at Mariners Land these days. Well, you definitely made us happy with everything we heard tonight. Hey, that's my job, right? <laughs> that's my responsibility, right? My responsibility is to tell you the truth, but I think that's the most uh, uh, that's the most fun about this right now about what's going on is that while I, I wouldn't blow smoke the fact that I don't have to, that I don't need to. And what I say is what I believe, but it's also exciting and promising and positive. That makes it a lot easier to do what I do on a daily basis. Well, easy talking to you tonight about all this Mariner stuff. So we want to say thanks for coming on, Jason. Is there anything you want to plug before we let you go? No, that's good. Keep listening to this podcast. Whatever you do out there, whoever you are in Mariner's land, keep listening to this podcast. You don't have to be loyal to a single podcast. Just keep this podcast in your rotation. You know, you can find me on Twitter at Prospect Insider. Baseball Things is the podcast, but keep listening to this podcast. Keep it in your rotation. We just found our new intro to the show. <laughs> hey, how about that? All right. <laughs> hey, guys, anytime. Appreciate it. Thanks for being flexible. Yeah, have a good one. Hey, you too. Thanks, man.